Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 Third Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray, God, that you would incline our hearts to your word. We need the work of your spirit in us, Lord. We pray that you would be pleased to use this time to bring us into joyful submission to your word and worship of your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Are you generous with your money? Now, that's kind of a trick question because what I really want you to notice is how you respond to being asked that question. Being asked about our money is not normally the way we like to start a conversation. When we realize the sermon is about money, our defenses go up. Uh, We sense a guilt trip in our future. We are asked for money all the time, and it's not always clear what the right thing is to do. Do you have to give to every mission trip fundraising letter that you get? Do you have to give to every uh, GoFundMe page for an unexpected medical expense? What about your friends who never ask you for money, but they just give you all the details about all the financial troubles in their life and how they can't pay their bills? In every instance, it's like there's a battle inside of us between not wanting to be taken advantage of and not wanting to feel stingy. Between protecting ourselves financially and protecting ourselves emotionally. So we rationalize why we don't need to give, and if that doesn't work, we rationalize what the smallest amount is we can give without feeling stingy. One way or another, we're glad when it's over, But that only lasts until the next fundraising letter, the next cardboard sign, or the next sermon. Then it starts all over again. But can you imagine a world where instead of uncertainty or suspicion, you felt joy when you heard of a need to give, an opportunity to give? Wouldn't that be freeing? Now, We all know that money is the means of getting or keeping things that matter to us, and so giving it away doesn't come easy. We need a why behind our giving, because in order to say yes to a request, we have to say no to something we want. We have to say no to that item on our shopping list, or that subscription that we feel like we can't live without, or more security in a savings account, or retirement. So what we want to talk about today is what we are saying yes to. We're commanded to give in Scripture. We're to give to the poor, to our brothers and sisters in need, to the advance of the gospel. But what is it that motivates a Christian to give that turns the negative experience of guilt and uncertainty into a positive experience of joyful devotion and obedience? And we're in a series right now that's walking through the different parts of our Sunday service and explaining why we do what we do. Every Sunday in our service, we have a section titled, We Respond Generosity. What makes generosity so essential to our devotion that it's a part of our service every week? And I love the practicality of this topic. We know phrases like, talk is cheap and put your money where your mouth is. We say things like this because we know that how we use our money reveals more about our hearts than our words do. And so we're not after your money today, but we are after your heart. We're after your joy. 
And so our main point today is this. We disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others in response to Jesus. Now, I know that word disadvantage might be off-putting. I realize that, and we'll understand a little later on why I'm using that word. But for now, I want you to keep this idea in front of you that we disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others in response to Jesus. You see, a heart that responds to Jesus is a heart that earnestly gives. Generosity is actually evidence that the gospel is transforming you. And we're gonna look at this in two points. We give because generosity is a fruit of grace, and we give because generosity is motivated by gain. And so our passage is in 2 Corinthians. And the backstory is that Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were suffering because of a famine. And so Paul started collecting money from uh, churches in other regions to be able to send back to give relief to the Jerusalem believers. And the church in Corinth was one of the ones that had volunteered to give. But then they ended up in a conflict with Paul, and so they didn't save up. And so now we're dropping into the middle of the book of 2 Corinthians, where after reconciling with the Corinthians, Paul is now once again urging them to give generously to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. So let's look at our first point, generosity is a fruit of grace. And let's start by reading chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So the first thing that Paul does is present the Macedonian church as an example of generosity. But do you see how he starts with God? The Macedonian example is really impressive, but everything they did had its source in the grace of God that was given to them. Grace is actually a central theme in our passage today. More than half the times that Paul uses the word grace in the book of 2 Corinthians are right here in these two chapters. So what's the connection between grace and generosity. Well, what we'll see is that grace is the basis of joy and love and trust, and all three of these produce generosity. It would be like if grace was a tree and God's grace was producing these different branches of trust and love and joy, and then generosity would be the fruit on each of those branches. Grace is the basis for all of it, yet each of these branches uniquely produce the fruit of generosity. So let's start with the grace of joy. Let's reread verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So God's grace came to them in the midst of a test. 
You see, God's grace hadn't removed severe afflictions and poverty, but rather had supplied an abundance of joy in the midst of their afflictions and poverty. So that when they heard of the Jerusalem church's great need, somehow the deficit caused by their poverty, when combined with the abundance of their joy, produced an overflow, a wealth of generosity. Affliction was no match for the grace of joy. And we see this throughout 2 Corinthians. Paul uses the word affliction several times. Paul has affliction, his companions have afflictions, the Macedonians have affliction. And so surprisingly, throughout the book, affliction doesn't go away in the midst of its grace that comes to them that produces joy in the midst of afflictions instead of removing the affliction. And doesn't that seem backwards? When we expect that if God was going to show us grace, he would take our trials away. Don't we just assume that we won't be happy until our suffering stops? I'll be happy when I feel well again, or when finances aren't so tight, when I get a better job, or when that relationship is restored. Then I'll have joy. But in 2 Corinthians, the triumph over affliction is that you are joyful in the affliction. And this abundant, overflowing joy is a joy that gives. And what does this look like? Well, we'll come back to this in just a little bit, but first we're going to see the next branch on this tree of grace, and that is the grace of love. Let's read verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So Paul wants to inspire the Corinthians to be like the Macedonians because he wants them to demonstrate the grace of genuine love. Now we all know the verse that love is the money, that money is the root of all evil. And in this passage, you see love and money as well. But do you see the contrast? Here it's actually through the use of money that the Macedonians prove their love. So love of money is turned on its head And instead, you see money as the means of loving people. Love of money uses people. Love of people uses money. And so the Macedonian example tests our hearts. What do we really love? But even though the Macedonian example is challenging, they're actually just a small picture of an even more costly love. Let's read verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is one of the most precious gospel summary statements in the Bible. For your sake he became poor. We've talked about grace already, but here Paul defines grace. Here's the grace that is the basis for every other experience of grace that we have. Paul is using a rich versus poor metaphor. But what does he mean? Well, poor refers to Jesus' incarnation, the eternal son entering humanity in the person of Jesus. The eternal son had always been with the father. He was loved by the father in perfect intimacy with him. He was equal with the father and glorious and radiant and worshiped by angels. And yet he set all this divine glory aside when he took on flesh and became poor. There's a line in a song that we sing that says, he the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity, 
This is what it is talking about. In his poverty, he became vulnerable. But we, what he willingly gave up in glory was something all the money in the world couldn't buy. Before the incarnation, he never had to experience feeling tired or thirsty or hungry. But when he became poor, the one who could not be tempted was tempted in every way. The one who could never sin bore all of our sin. The one who couldn't die experienced death. The gap between what Jesus gave up and what he endured is infinite. And so genuine love was Jesus cosmically disadvantaging himself for us. And Paul's point throughout 2 Corinthians is that this is what genuine ministry is. You see, false apostles had deceived the people, claiming that Paul's ministry was flawed and unimpressive because of all of his humility and suffering. Surely a true apostle wouldn't, it would have been more impressive and wouldn't have had to experience all of Paul's affliction. But Paul, throughout the letters, making the point that authentic ministry is disadvantaging yourself for the sake of others because that's what Jesus did for us. So wherever you incur a cost, in order to help someone know and follow Jesus, you are doing authentic ministry. You're reflecting Christ's genuine love. For Christ to do this meant that he incurred an infinite cost. And so because he has loved us in this way, we incur a cost to genuinely love others. He gave up far more than we could ever give. So God's grace towards us, his genuine love for us, produces the fruit of generosity in us. So often we think of suffering and weakness as obstacles to ministry. If my health wasn't so bad, or if I wasn't so lonely, if only I wasn't in the midst of a massive project at work, or if only I wasn't still in college, then I would serve Jesus. But God doesn't primarily get glory in the big things you can do for him when you feel strong and self-sufficient. Instead, he gets glory when in the midst of whatever circumstances he has ordained, we treasure Christ more than health, more than success, more than significance. And instead, we love those around us in the grace he supplies. It's out of that cherishing of him that true ministry happens, that we give ourselves in love to others, spending and being spent no matter how weak or how small or how painful. The next branch that we're going to see on this tree of grace is the grace of trust. Notice the word earnest in our passage. You see it multiple times throughout the chapter. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, almost all the instances of this word are here in chapter 8. Except in chapter 7, right before the section, Paul connects earnestness with repentance. So let's look at chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Remember that the Corinthian church had been in a conflict with Paul. So Paul had written a tearful letter to them, warning them to repent And to Paul's great relief, the church actually did repent. They had godly grief and they changed direction. Now, what does it mean um, 
to be earnest. Paul says that godly grief not only produced repentance, but it also produced earnestness. So what does he mean? When you make an offer on a house, you're expressing a conviction. I want that house. But when you put down earnest money on a house, you're demonstrating the the character of your conviction. I'm willing to lose something to get that house. It proves that you're serious. And the location of our passage coming right after chapter 7 is significant. It's only after Paul addresses their repentance in chapter 7 that he goes on to urging their generosity in chapter 8. Paul is making his appeal to a repentant church because our generosity is downstream of receiving grace. And we see this repeatedly throughout the Bible, that earnest generosity flows out of receiving grace. In Exodus, after the Israelites received grace for the incident with the golden calf, they gave generously to the work on the tabernacle. In 2 Chronicles, after the people received grace for the wicked rule of King Ahaz, they gave generously to support King Hezekiah's reforms. In Nehemiah, after the exiles received grace in returning to Jerusalem, they gave abundantly to the work of rebuilding the city. In Luke, after the tax collector Zacchaeus received grace by being called by Jesus, he gave away half of his goods to the poor. And in Acts, after the very crowd that had called for Jesus' execution received the grace of salvation, they sold their possessions and generously distributed to their brothers and sisters in need. And so likewise, everyone is earnestly giving in this passage. There's a sincere and intense conviction behind all the giving that's happening. And what is that conviction? They trust God. If they've experienced God's grace and salvation, then they can trust him for what they need tomorrow. The grip they have on their possessions is loosened because they don't have to trust in themselves anymore. And this trust leads to something Paul calls fairness. So let's read chapter 8, verses 10 through 15. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So Paul showed them these incredible examples of generosity in the Macedonians and in Christ himself. And the Corinthians might have been feeling a little nervous because they were probably fairly well-to-do. They lived in a pretty prosperous city. They had an abundance. Like many of us, they probably had a lot to lose. But Paul isn't asking them to be radical for radicals' sake. He tells them to give according to what they have so that they can meet their brother's needs. And this is what he calls fairness. So what does he mean by fairness? Is Paul imposing a system of wealth redistribution for the sake of equality? Well, Paul actually explains what he means by using a quotation from Exodus about gathering manna in the wilderness. And again, he connects it to trusting God. You see, God had miraculously provided food for the Israelites every day in the wilderness, and he did this to test them. 
Would they trust him to provide or would they rely on themselves and disobey? Many Israelites didn't trust God to provide what they needed tomorrow, so they gathered more today just to be safe. But anything they saved up, spoiled. Seems like almost every day our kids come to Patty at mealtime and inform her that they are hungry. She's working in the kitchen, food is on the counter, but it's as if they're worried that mom might forget there's this little thing in the middle of the day called lunch. Imagine your kids are so untrusting of you that you find old plates of food stashed inside their room. That would be irrational and kind of gross. But that's exactly what the Israelites were doing. And their lack of trust in God's provision and their self-reliance only brought them trouble. Instead, in God's providence, some were able to gather more and some were able to gather less. But in the end, the whole community had exactly enough for everyone. You see this conviction of who God is, his grace towards you, his trustworthiness that he'll provide, is what gives us the freedom to let go of our grasp on money. Remember, the Macedonians gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. First and foremost, they entrusted themselves to Jesus. They trusted Jesus. We submit ourselves to God in his way, instead of trusting in ourselves and the empty promises of more manna now. So fairness doesn't mean an imposed redistribution of wealth. Instead, it means that your abundance is meant to help you meet the needs of others instead of storing up excess for yourself. Paul's point is that there's nothing to gain by holding on to more than you need when your brother is in need. You'll trouble your own house And you'll miss out on the joy of knowing that there's no lack amongst your brothers and sisters. So when we see the Macedonians' joy, Christ's poverty, and the promise of provision, we see at least that our giving should be sacrificial. There should be things that we go without in order to be generous. We should have a lifestyle of living simply, not for minimalism's sake, but for Christ's sake, that our resources could flow to others' needs, to gospel work, to evangelizing the nations. Some have called this a a wartime or a missions-minded lifestyle. So is how you use all of your money a result of grace? Can you connect everything in your budget to loving God and loving others? Are there things that you're willingly doing without for the sake of love? Or is there greater joy to be had in how you spend your money? In the rest of chapter eight, Paul talks about the integrity of his partners and the collection that they're overseeing. He wants to clear away any suspicion that he's trying to use the collection as a means of personal gain. Far from trying to defraud them, he's trying to help them. Rather than trying to get gain for himself, he's actually after gain for them. And this leads us to our second point today. We give because generosity is motivated by gain. When our first point, we looked back at everything God has supplied, now we're going to look forward to what we gain when we give. So let's read chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. 
For I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction." So the Corinthians have yet to follow through on their promise to give. And Paul's assuming that they will give, but first he reminds them how ridiculous it would be to not willingly give. It wouldn't make make sense for them to give under compulsion. So before he talks about all they have to gain, he shows them what they have to lose. You see, what's at stake is Paul and his associates' reputation and the Corinthians' own reputation, If the Macedonians come and realize that the Corinthians that had inspired them to give were a fraud, then everybody's going to be disappointed and humiliated. Then the Corinthians will give, but it won't be a willing gift. It'll be an exaction. It'll be giving out of guilt. You see, we hate giving out of guilt. When the cashier suddenly asks you if you want to donate today to a children's hospital, you're caught off guard. We talked before about that struggle between excuses not to give or just giving so you don't seem stingy. But there's a difference between giving out of guilt and giving out of grace. Relief from guilt doesn't come from opening your pocketbook under compulsion or convincing yourself that you can keep it closed. It comes from knowing that you've received the grace of God at the cross so that when you do give, it's a joyful response to grace. In a couple verses, he'll say to give, not reluctantly, but as you've decided in your heart. Once again, we see how Paul is not trying to impose equality between everyone's finances. In order to be a Christian, it has to be voluntary. It's up to the giver to decide in his heart and cheerfully give of his own accord. And it's important to think about that phrase, decide in your heart, because it may not be the way that you've thought about your giving, Often in church, you hear about something called tithing. And this might even be the principle that you've used to guide your own giving. The word tithe just means a tenth. And by tithing, we usually mean giving 10% of your income to the church. Now, giving tithes was one of the things commanded in the Old Testament law. But when you add up the giving that the Israelites were commanded to do, it actually equates to something more like 20% of their income, not 10%. So if the Israelites are the standard, then most of us aren't even doing that. Then you come to the New Testament and there are no commands to give 10%. See, God is more concerned with what we love than the amount that we give. But what we give can give us some insight into what we love. If we love possessions and seek security and money, we will give sparingly. But if we are amazed by God's love and grace towards us in Jesus, then we will give bountifully. So what do we do with tithing? Well, first, ask yourself if you've looked to a percentage instead of looking to Jesus for what to give. Perhaps you've put yourself under law instead of rejoicing in grace. Perhaps rejoicing in grace means that you need to take a season of giving less than 10% in order to meet the basic needs of your family. There's no shame in that. But more often, rejoicing in grace probably looks like giving in greater amounts. Shouldn't we who are privileged to know Jesus and his spirit in such intimacy, shouldn't we give more than those who are under the old covenant? 
And so in our Sunday services, we've always used the phrase tithes and offerings, but now we're just going to call it an offering. And so each one of us must give as we've decided in our heart, not according to the law of Moses, not as an exaction, but according to the effect of grace on our hearts. And when the affections of your heart are warmed to Jesus, what you give will never be stingy. So it's the Corinthians' own joy that's at stake. If they only give because they have to, then they're wasting something. They're going to miss out. So showing them, after showing them everything that they have to lose, Paul wants to show them what they have to gain. Let's read chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So did you see the motivation he gives? He asks, do you want a bountiful harvest? Do you want a bountiful reward? Then sow bountifully. And this doesn't sound much different from a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And it's true, God wants us to be motivated by blessing, by reward, um, by gain. But here's what sets the true gospel apart. What is it that we're harvesting? What do we gain And so we're going to look at this in three ways, the love of God, the harvest of righteousness, and the glory of God. So first we'll see the love of God. Let's read verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So God loves a cheerful giver. And maybe you're asking yourself, does that mean that God loves me based off of what I do? And the answer is no and yes. Remember, we read before that though Jesus was rich, for our sake he became poor, that we by his poverty might become rich. Well, we looked at what it meant for Jesus to become poor, but what does it mean that we become rich? The word grace has sometimes been used as an acronym for God's riches at Christ's expense. Because Jesus became poor for you, every time you suffer... Jesus sympathizes with your weakness. Every time you are tempted, Jesus has already endured in your place. Every time you sin, Jesus has already been punished in your place. For our sake, he made him to be sin. For your sake, he became poor. Jesus didn't restore us, just to restore us back to a state of being like Adam and Eve in the garden with potential to obey or potential to fail. Instead, Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness so you don't stand before God with potential, but with Christ. God accepts us with Christ's sacrifice and Christ's record. As a part of Christ's family, you are very wealthy indeed. Jesus' exclusive rights and enjoyment of the Father have been extended to us. Now, probably some of you here today aren't disciples of Jesus, and you're just trying to understand what Jesus is all about. And others of you might call yourself Christian, but you might think Christianity is all about doing good things, loving people, being spiritual, or being a responsible part of our community. You might even think that there's truth in all religions and many paths to God. But what we want you to know is that this gospel message is what you must believe in order to be saved. If you think being a good person, coming to church, giving lots of money, or you doing anything else makes you worthy of God's love, then you don't understand your greatest problem. 
Our sin has separated us from a good and holy God. Our sin is so offensive that it makes us deserving of a loving God's wrath. And no amount of doing the right thing and no amount of money can buy you what Jesus freely offers you. God's love is a giving love. God so loved the world that he gave. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We get grace through Jesus making himself weak and vulnerable for our sake. He experienced your poverty so you, by simply receiving this gift, could experience his riches. This is the Jesus you must believe in order to be saved. So can we earn God's love through our works? No. But as those who have experienced his grace, can our works increase his love for us? Well, in a sense, yes. There probably hasn't been a greater joy in parenting than when one of our kids imitates our devotion to Jesus. I remember Nehemiah as a two-year-old listening to worship music, and he was rocking back and forth and then just lifted his hand in worship as if it was the most natural thing to do. Or how excited the kids have gotten to, to give money to the church or to put something in the missionary jar. Or how they start singing a hymn together in the van as we're driving somewhere, all by themselves. These things don't create my love for them. I already love them. But when they bear the family resemblance of devotion to Jesus, I'm just so grateful. It enhances my love for them. I'm, I'm just so proud of them. How does it make you feel to know that that's how your heavenly father feels about you? As his grace produces love and cheerful generosity, you have the assurance that your heavenly father is pleased. He loves you. Isn't that gain? Doesn't your father's pleasure in you as you bear the family resemblance of Christ, doesn't that make you want to sow bountifully? So this is where we start to understand that word disadvantage. You see, yes, we disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others. Yes, there is a cost to us, but hopefully what you're seeing is that generosity is actually to your advantage. Generosity is costly because we're giving up something. There's a loss of the feeling of being in control, that we have the means to protect ourselves or get for ourselves what we want. But we are trading worldly treasure for heavenly treasure. If your heart is set on your Father in heaven, then in the midst of your making yourself weak for the sake of others, Christ's power is on display. It's on display because we love him more than health. We love him more than wealth. We love him more than the security and pleasure found in prosperity. So that we can have none of these things and yet we're still full. Whatever our financial means, we are rich in Christ. We have something to give away because in Christ, we are freed from the love of the world. And instead of our eye never being satisfied, we have no lack. And this leads us to our next motivation, the harvest of righteousness. Let's read verses eight to 11. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. 
you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So Paul uses a lot of phrases that get at the same point. He talks about grace abounding, having all sufficiency, being enriched in every way. The word rich in 2 Corinthians normally refers to spiritual riches. And yet on top of this, he physically provides us with so much. And Paul quotes from Psalm 112 to illustrate this. Let's read that verse nine again. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. In Psalm 112, it talks about the faithful man. He is generous and isn't afraid of loss because God cares for him. His provision for others actually reflects God's provision for him. When it says his righteousness endures forever, it's referring to the faithful man. But that same phrase is also used in the previous Psalm, Psalm 112, and there it's referring to God. You see, the faithful man's righteousness endures forever because God's righteousness endures forever. And God is supplying everything we need for every righteous, Christ-like deed. So God will continually meet our needs and enable us to meet others in need so that we grow in acts of righteousness. And so verse talked about reaping bountifully, but what are we harvesting? It's righteousness. The moment you believe you have become, the moment of salvation, when you believe you have become the righteousness of God in Christ as a gift. And now Christ in us is transforming us to become more and more like him so that more and more what we do is righteous. He's increasing the harvest of our righteousness. And this leads into the third motivation of gain, the glory of God. Let's read verses 11 to 15. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So the ultimate aim of generosity is thanksgiving to God. And this brings glory to God. But what is glory? Well, you see, God is holy and perfect in all that he is, and yet he is invisible. So his glory is the reality of who he is going public. It's his invisible majesty breaking into our world so that his worth and value are displayed. So when we make much of Jesus in giving thanks to him, we glorify him. And so how is God going to get glory through the Corinthians' gift? Well, as the believers in Jerusalem see the generosity of the Corinthians, they're going to respond with thanksgiving to God. The Corinthians' generosity is a live confession of the gospel of Christ. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we're making a confession of the gospel of Christ. When someone shares a confession of of faith at baptism, they are sharing a confession of the gospel of Christ. 
But do you see how obeying Jesus and imitating him in costly generosity against all of our flesh and because we trust him, we are also making a confession of the gospel of Christ. The the Corinthians confession of Christ is being lived out and the transforming power of the gospels on display in their submission to him. So the Corinthians' generosity isn't just a response of their own hearts, but it's also an occasion for others to glorify God. The Corinthians have received God's grace and now their generosity is a grace to the Jerusalem church. So saints are praising God for how he has met their own needs through the Corinthians in this act of grace. And this response of thanksgiving changes how we do the offering portion of our service. Several months ago, I was thinking about how we do the offering on Sundays, and I wanted to suggest some changes for practical reasons. Since COVID, we haven't passed around a bucket, and even before COVID, most people were giving online. No one ever really utilizes the offering time, so it just seemed like more of a transition than a part of our worship. And I've also always admired churches that just have an offering box in the lobby. Um, That way, they're never asking for money, and it communicates, we're not after your money, and we trust God to provide for the church. But in studying this passage, my mind has been changed. And now, rather than wanting to minimize the offering, the elders actually want to feature it in our service. There's something better than convincing you that we're not after your money, and that is responding to the gospel. There's something better than convincing you we trust God to take care of our budget. And that is giving thanks to God. That's why generosity belongs in our service. So after the scripture reading in the first part of the service, we're now going to draw your attention to the offering like Johnny did this morning. Just as we respond to the reading with thanks be to God, we are going to give thanks by responding in generosity. So whether you walk back and put something in the new offering boxes by the doors, or if you gave online, we want to remember as we sing that third song about how Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for us. We want to thank God for his inexpressible gift in Christ and for the privilege of reflecting his costly love in the giving of our offering. So you remember that this passage is all about grace. It is a gracious thing to experience all that we gain when we give. Generosity is not only the fruit of grace, but also as it turns out, more grace is the motivation for generosity. What do we have that we have not received? Everything comes to us as a gift. Paul himself just breaks out in thanksgiving in the last verse when he can't contain his own thanksgiving anymore. He says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. God's inexpressible gift to us is Christ. And genuine ministry, genuine love, is grace on display in making ourselves weak or disadvantaged for the sake of others. All in reflection of Christ and enabled by Christ for the glory of Christ. And so in closing, I personally know that just like the Corinthians, it's easier for me to get inspired in a moment than it is to really live these things out. I like to think I'm a generous person, but in reality, most of my generosity has been out of the excess that I've had. It hasn't been often that I've truly disadvantaged myself for the sake of others. But there have been a few times where I have just been really aware of God's sustaining grace as I've tried to be generous. 
For instance, one time, Patty and I were having a conversation about a need in the church, and suddenly we looked up at each other and had the same thought at the same time of how we could help with the need. But even after we made that decision, I wrestled with it for weeks. Off and on, I felt excited and then weak. I was anxious and kept thinking about how it could hurt in the future if we followed through with it. I wanted to protect myself, so I had to pray and read and keep listening to sermons and reminding myself of Christ's worth and the privilege of any infinitely small reflection of Christ. And there's still days where I'll think of decisions like that and I'm tempted to feel like we gave something up. But I have to remind myself of all that we have gained. Have you heard the story of the man whose carriage breaks down on his way to collect a million dollar inheritance? He sulks the rest of the way there going, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. Look at what we have inherited in Christ. We only have a few miles to go. How small is this inconvenience? No matter how generous we've ever been, we've never lacked. But the greatest gain we experience is just knowing his love and care and faithfulness and all of it. Just letting go is the hardest part. But I'm so grateful when it's gone. You just praise God for his faithfulness, that the world is losing its grip on you, that Jesus really is better than money. And what a privilege it is that we get to love people this way. Aren't you grateful that his grace gives us something better than worldly security? Isn't it better to experience his intimate fellowship in clearer ways? Aren't you grateful for how your heavenly father is pleased even with our fumbling attempts to glorify him? What a joy when we get to taste his costly sacrifice, glimpsing his love in clearer ways and knowing he graciously receives everything that we do saying, well done, I am so very pleased. Don't be radical for radical's sake. Paul says, if I give up all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Spend and be spent because he loves you. Give because you want to show his love to others. Let go of worldly security, possessions, and pleasures, and cherish Christ so that whatever you decide to give, you can say, I don't need any of it. If I have Christ, I have no lack. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for Jesus. We praise you, Lord, for your generosity towards us in Christ. Lord, we ask that you would please work in our hearts so that this salvation we've received as a gift would be effective to cause us to love others with your giving love. Lord, increase our worship of Jesus in the practical ways that we use our money. Oh, I pray, Lord, that an understanding of all we have in Christ would carry us moment to moment in joyful generosity towards others for the sake of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.